I think our city is really on the verge of being completely adapted to living with and on water. I don't think it's going to be a horrible thing, but the city of Miami and the county are not quite there yet. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Lorinda Speer and Margarita Blanco, landscape architects whose work focuses on the building of ecologically performative public spaces. Lorinda and Margarita join us today to discuss their work in elevating landscape in Miami. Lorinda, Margarita, welcome. Thank you. So you're both architects, and you're both architects who made a decision early on to be committed to doing work in the public realm. And at a point mid-career, you might say, decided to, to retool, to re-identify as landscape architects. Tell me about that. Tell me about that choice and the decision to train as a landscape architect when you had already established careers as architects working in the public realm of some prominence? I mean, for me, I just felt it was, there was something unconscionable about the way we were going about architecture, ignoring the site entirely. And even thinking to ourselves, it's not even necessary to see the site at times. And so at some point, maybe more than 15 years ago, I said, this is just not the right way of doing this. And I thought, you know, to do it right, you'd have to be a landscape architect as well. And because we had worked in China for 40 years, we were one of the first firms over there. And we had to familiarize ourselves with feng shui. And I thought, you know, they have the right idea, even though they're not calling it landscape architecture. Effectively, it's what it is and what you really should be doing. And so a cousin of mine is a feng shui necromancer or geomancer, whatever they call. And I thought, well, I could do that or I could just be a landscape architect. So then I got kind of excited and interested in doing it. And it also, it seems really a feminine in a way pursuit because you think of mother earth and, you know, being involved in landscape seems the right thing to do for women in a way. Well, I had this glib idea that since I'd already been an architect, it was like super easy to be a landscape architect. All I had to do was call DPBR or whatever they call themselves, Department of business and professional regulation and just announced that, okay, could you kindly give me a license? <laughs> and I tried that. It did not work at all, zero. <laughs> so you cannot get a license that way at all. And they said, no, 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 you have to go back to school. We're not going to accept anything, no experience, no nothing. I said, couldn't I be kind of grandfathered in, grandmothered in? <laughs> no, not possible. So there wasn't really a choice because I don't think just diddling around with the drawing and saying, oh, this is the landscape architecture. Really, that is not it at all. You need to go through the process. Mm -hmm. So when I realized that after trying the shortcut route, uh, I said, no, it, it, we just have to rigorously go through this thing. And so somehow Margarita was in town and we both decided to go back to school together because we just had the same urge. And so we decided to go to FIU. It's to your credit to make that commitment. and. Um and, you know, we'll, we'll return to that, but I want to go back a little bit to the kind of the origin, the origin story. You were, you know, at the, at the foundation of, of Architectonica, producing extraordinary work over the course of decades at a moment in time, really, uh, that I also associate with the, with the growth of Miami. I remember, you know, myself, just my, my own experience as a student in college in the mid 1980s, seeing the Atlantis building published and thinking what a revelation this is that one could actually imagine that as a project and seeing the cultural impact that that one project had. So 
I want to I want to just go back and and ask you a little bit about that origin. So you you studied architecture. You you were a, a Yaley. Where were um, I studied architecture at Columbia, and mm-hmm. I went to undergrad at Brown, ah. and then I did a stint of urban planning at MIT. Mm-hmm. But um, through all that, I think when we first came to Miami, I think we were kind of form makers more than anything, and we got connected with Andres and Liz because Andres and Liz and Bernardo had been not in the exact same classes, but around each other's classes at Princeton undergrad. And so we kind of all reconnected here. And so the we were the four of you. So and then we'd brought in Hervin Romney because he had the license at the time. And so it was five. And so it was really three people from Yale, me from Columbia, which is, mm. and Bernardo from Harvard. And I think we felt like pioneers in the desert because we looked around this and all the other Architects were really good, like Al Parker or Charles Pauley. They were more slapidus. They were good, but they were just not thinking the way we were. There was really no one our age who was really doing what we were doing. Hmm. How is it that you all came to choose Miami as a venue to strike upon? Bernardo went here by default because he was offered a job at UM. And he was in Peru at that time was under kind of a dictatorship. It was really impossible to live there. And Andres and Liz, I think, came here by default because they were just kind of floating. Andres's nearest foothold was Miami. Otherwise, it'd be Spain, where he grew up. And his grandmother lived here, and his parents were moving here from Spain. So his family was centering in Miami, mm. he, he being a Cuban exile. Liz just followed Andres. She was from Philadelphia. And her father was an architect, actually. You know, Liz speaks Polish fluently. She's Polish. She, so she was bringing a whole other cultural element, the old world Europe. And then my family had been here since, I guess my grandfather came here in 1919 or 1920 as the first doctor in Hollywood. Hmm. And so I don't know why these people wanted to live here. It was really God forsaken. I can't even imagine mother, my mother growing up here and the things she had to do to go to school, drive forever. And, you know, it was like... A pioneer place. So those early days in practice, the four, the five of you, this would have been in the mid-late 1970s. I mean, certainly there was a, a very strong kind of modernist tradition in South Florida, mm-hmm. Florida generally. Uh, the kind of uh, Rudolph Sarasota school, the Miami Modern, the Lapidus material. And I'm struck on the one hand by how different, you know, your practice was immediately and how legible it was, you know, not just for a local audience, but for a national audience, right? I mean, it was in the opening credits to Miami Vice and it was everywhere on every magazine cover. Mm -hmm. And as a, you know, a student of architecture in Florida at that time, it was unmistakable. Mm -hmm. So you worked together as a group of four or five for a relatively short period of time. Yeah, really short. And then they spun off with Seaside and Robert Davis and we just kept going with finishing the Atlantis, the palace, and the imperial, the three buildings on Brickle, and then from there, mm. kind of moving forward. And at a moment in time when the idea of making that part of Brickle uh, a kind of city was quite radical, no? Yeah, because there were people living in homes there at the time, you know? Mm. Even like Mayor Ferre had his house there still at that time. So Margarita, let, let's talk a little bit about your origin story. So you, you studied architecture, you got your license, and you also had a notable career doing quite prominent work. I don't think that notable, but here I am. (laughs) Um, Well, I studied architecture in Cornell, actually with Lorinda's sister, Ah. Alison. And after that, I went to um, study economics in London. So 
when I finished that, I just stayed in London working for the Colombian Embassy for the Trade and Coffee Federation. And after like eight years in London, I decided to go back to Colombia and with the Coffee Federation set up a architectural studio with Ricardo Bofil, this Spanish architect, and created the Taller de Arquitectura de las Americas, which is his studio, but for the Americas, to do big urban low-cost housing projects. And I guess I can say that I grew up, you know, in the country, in a way, in the countryside. So I had a special connection to nature all my life, and I always loved it. And I didn't discover that there was a thing called landscape architecture until, you know, I lived in London, actually. And I was upset because having gone to Cornell, you know, I would have thought that the School of Architecture would be connected to the School of Landscape Architecture, but they're not. You didn't even know they existed. You know, the landscape architects didn't know we existed. We didn't know they existed. Things have changed now, <laughs> no doubt, but no back doubt. then yeah. it was a mystery. So then the situation in Colombia changed radically at the end of the 90s. And the taller was in the capital? Where it was, it was in, in, Bogota. in Bogota. Yeah, we did five huge urban design projects, mm. like 30,000 housing units with um, amazing urban spaces that were very innovative for the mentality of social housing in Latin America. But the situation got out of hand and Bofil said that he didn't want to go back to Colombia because they were going to shoot him or kidnap him or something was going to happen. And we had to dissolve the taller. So then my husband, like Lorinda said, worked in the music business. He had a recording studio in Bogota. He was offered some consulting job in Miami. And he said, oh, do you want to come with me? And I said, okay, fine. So we came and eventually stayed. And I went to school with Lorinda. And here we are. Fantastic know? story. I guess for me, the symmetry here is committed as an architect, but you also had a sense that something was absent, something was missing. This was a little bit of my experience in school was I was trained essentially to not talk to the landscape architects, mm -hmm. <laughs> both at the undergraduate level in Gainesville, Florida, and in graduate school uh, in Philadelphia, that they were a, another species altogether. And I think mm -hmm. that our generational experience might be similar in that sense of a kind of opposition, you know, mm -hmm. between design culture or a kind of environmental commitment, you know? And that's something I sense in both of your backstories is mm -hmm. you were not thinking just of buildings as buildings per se, as cultural objects, or even just as instruments of commerce but they were addressing societal and urbanistic needs. And so in that sense, I'm interested to understand more about how you identified the professional turn. Like, so you encounter landscape architecture in London. Mm -hmm. You have a sense from your cultural background, your experience in Latin America of its potential as a medium. Mm -hmm. And you have some sense from what you said about the, the limitations of architecture as an instrument, let's say. And yet, like Lorinda, you made this astonishing commitment, again, at the, at the middle of a flourishing career, to go into a new field, new set of tools, a new license. Uh, that must have been a choice that you thought about a long time. Huh? Well, no, I don't think I thought about it. I just <laughs> sort of dipped into it, mm -hmm. you know. I think it sort of was a natural thing that happened after going through all the 
public housing in Colombia, I think, you know, the transformation there in those specific projects was really astonishing how, you know, these tiny little rooms, because that's what they used to build as public housing or social housing, had no urban space or no public space, no parks, no green areas, nothing. And then all of a sudden, they are in the midst of all this green greenery. So that to me was, you know, something that I thought just needed to pursue or implement in a grander scale, right? I didn't know how it was going to happen after that. I had no idea I was going to end up in Miami. I had no idea that I was going to go to school with Lorinda. Nothing. I'm struck by the, first of all, the diversity of the conversation, right? So we've, we've, we now have like seven schools of architecture and landscape <laughs> architecture in the mix. We've got six national origins. We've got different, you know, like, like that diversity. I mean, it, it does speak to my experience of Miami as being a place that is on the one hand, uh, a global city, you could say, but it's also maybe more specifically a place where a lot of cultures mix. So you made these choices in the early 2000s to go back yeah, to school? That's... Yeah, it was 2003 mm -hmm. or four. Mm -hmm. 2004, we went back to school. And so as you went back to school, as you both went on this parallel path, was it clear that you would immediately launch this new firm? Or how does the transition from studying you know, wanting to seek the license, wanting to be serious about it. And then the idea of forming this practice, how, how does that how does that happen? OK, well, Lorinda decided to create a landscape firm mm -hmm. independent from Architectonic. Mm -hmm. OK, it was her decision. And then one day we went to take a course to take our licensing exam in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And remember, and, yeah. and we went there and it was like a three day course. That's right. And one of the persons teaching the course was this elderly gentleman, landscape architect, who was at the time 70 years old, whose name is George Fogg. And he was an expert in park design. He had written several books on parks for the uh, park and recreation entity of the, of the nation. So George was there and we sort of became friends with George. And, you know, then Lorinda decided to create this new firm and asked me if I would be interested in, you know, joining her to do it. And so I said, yes, I'd love to. And then we had to find somebody that was licensed because it was the same case as Architectonica. Mm -hmm. Both of us, we hadn't finished school. We still had one more year. And so we said, oh, George is the perfect one. We went and we spoke to George and George, you know, became like our mentor and the three of us started together. Fantastic. So you're committed to forming a practice. The idea of doing it separate from, but somehow affiliated with Architectonica. So you, Architectonica at this point in 04, 05 is quite prominent internationally, yeah. offices in a lot of places, doing quite a lot of work of a certain kind. And so the idea to situate that within as a kind of boutique or kind of salon firm within the bigger firm, how, how does that emerge? We sort of wanted to get some of their draft in there, you know, like bike riders do. So we took the name, although we always had a little bit of misgiving about that. We were kind of like, we don't want to be in their shadow. Mm -hmm. And I felt that, you know, it was really easy to get sidelined or even to get in the situation where they, Architectonica was just sending us sketches to draft them up because they feel like they're better landscape architects than we are anyway. All of them, every single one of those guys. and so. 
it was a tricky little tightroping situation to try to stay independent and to clarify what we do. Luckily, the city of Miami and actually Miami-Dade County required, even at the time, landscape architecture drawings be submitted for any project so that we were a commodity that was like readily available. They needed us very badly. And there was some logic to it. We could stake our ground just because it was a required element of all building permits. Hmm. Thankfully, because prior to that, I'm not so certain it had been actually required. So as you started and you took on all this work, what kind of work were you doing in in the first years? I mean, what kind of projects were you engaged in? I would say mixed use and residential. But then we struck luck because we were commissioned by Herzog and Demiurn to do the art museum in Miami. And that was basically the first project that was not with Architectonica. Mm. So, you know, it was really, I think, a turning point in our practice. And we decided that we wanted to continue to pursue clients and a portfolio from other architects and not just Architectonica. Mm. We've managed to do that. And I think that today, 40, maybe 35% of the practice is for architects other firms, mm. other architectural firms that have, you know, hired us at some point and always come back, mm. you know. And I think um, I'd say 20% of our practice, so we're up to 60, is developers who come back to us right. without even their architect. The developer right. just says, we want you. Yes. And so don't worry about the architect. We'll just mm-hmm. get this thing. So I'd say only 30 to 40% of our He's work is now architectonica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Pam the Perez Art Museum mm-hmm. here, which is, it's an extraordinary, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cultural institution. First mm-hmm. of all, let's say that. Second of all, its architectural aspirations were of mm-hmm. a time when Miami was opening itself mm-hmm. to a much wider horizon of architectural talent, but both in public work, but also in, in commercial and mixed use work. The idea that a building, a prominent building on that site, Herzog and Nimron, would be clad or sheathed almost entirely in your work. That's quite a project to launch mm-hmm. with. No? I mean, and this was only yeah. after a couple of years in practice. No? That was exactly three years or two and a half years into the practice. So this would have been 07, 08, something like yeah. this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a competition, really. I mean, you know, we had to compete with other landscape architects. I I don't remember who. No, I, I just remember that we spent a lot of time doing our presentation for them, you know, and thinking what we wanted to say and show and how we would actually make come alive their vision for the building. And in the end, they selected us. And, you know, we loved doing the project. It was a fantastic experience. You know, we learned a lot from it as well, because a lot of the things that we implemented in that project were done for the first time. The hanging columns had never been done before. The uh, gravel parking uh, surface had never been done before. So there's issues that have come through the years with all these, but we're working with them to resolve them. We're working with Herzog and the museum to, you know, find better ways of doing it. But we also had a hurricane two years ago and everything worked perfectly as designed. I mean, the building, you know, the water went right through, it percolated through the gravel, which was the whole point of doing the garage because the whole building is completely, um, Let's porous. Say porous, right? Mm-hmm. So what we didn't want was the water gets to the garage and then where does the water go, mm-hmm. right? 
So that's why we you know, proposed doing this. At the time, the code in Miami didn't allow it. So, you know, we had to fight for it, and did all sorts of mock-ups. The architect supported us, and so did the client, and then the city, mm. you know. And that's why it was done, and I think that that's why it turned out to be such a great building in the end. It's an extraordinary piece of work. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, for people that haven't seen it, they should do. Mm -hmm. Among the things that I'm struck by, uh, first and foremost, you mentioned the idea of the permeable understory, right? right? So the idea that the building that's fronting directly onto Biscayne Bay, mm -hmm. this incredible once-in-a-lifetime urban site looking across this incredible ecosystem, the art lifted above, but underneath everything absorbing water. And you can mm -hmm. see this in every decision about the surface of the ground plane, the design of all the materials, mm -hmm. and the idea that that it works. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, another notable feature, you mentioned these hanging gardens, you know, the kind of visual aspect of this mm -hmm. building is, among other things, especially on its public-facing facade onto the bay, is just incredible hanging columns of plant material that, mm -hmm. you know, again, to, to have, you know, architects of, of that caliber doing a work of that type, and not only in the infrastructure accommodating sea level rise and storm event, but also in the image of the building. So after the success of PAM, you continue to have done quite a lot of other work, uh, working directly with the development community, working directly with architects. And in that sense, I think Architectonica Geo, even in its first 10 or 15 years of, of existence, has really mirrored the development in landscape architecture more broadly. I think in that same two decades, landscape architects have aspired, many of them, to move from being subcontracted uh, to architects, right, toward being their own prime contractors in a way, and sort of mo moving up the food chain in terms of the solicitation of public work and these kinds of things. Uh, but in working directly with the development community, have you had better success than working with architects? We're thinking about that. And Margarita and I just recently had a conversation about return on investment for developers, because the uncapitalized aspect of their project that they don't notice and they're only now starting to notice is the landscape because that makes all the difference in their projects. For example, just one around here, Brickle City Center, without the landscape, if I don't know if you've looked at it or gone up there, it would just be a, a very stark, concrete, huge project. But the landscape really makes it a desirable place to go, I think. And as developers start to realize that landscape gives them a return on investment that they hadn't even heretofore thought about or even considered, they're more interested in contracting with us and engaging with us, as you say, directly. And, you know, the architecture is one thing, but landscape architecture is really important for them at this point. I have this mm -hmm. uh, recollection. I, I think it happened. It might have been a dream. Just being at Brickle, sort of halfway up a building near a pool with an olive grove. No. I don't know if it was olive. I think it was probably silver buttonwoods. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah. I'm not a tree guy. Because they're very that. similar to olive trees. Yes, yeah. you're so, correct. Yeah. But so, all our, all, all our uh, palette for mm -hmm. Brickle City Center, it was all native. Mm -hmm. You know, we have almost, I think, five or almost six acres of green roofs, you know. And that was also, I have to say, a big leap that we took in our practice when we did Brickle City Center, because it's such a huge project. It was the biggest in the United States at the time, in the midst of a recession. And the only green roof we had done at the time was at FIU, which was the largest green roof in Florida, 9,000 square feet. And it was also 
extremely hard because the code didn't allow it at the time. Okay, believe it or not. And that's 2006 or seven. You know, they thought it was going to fly away in a hurricane. There were all these issues about the hurricane code. In the end, it turned out well and we changed, you know, we, we, we did the green roof and, you know, it hasn't flown away in any hurricane. And they're doing pretty well. And they've brought back a lot of birds and fauna and bees. And, you know, it's not only about the thermal aspects of it, but also the, you know, environmental aspects. I mean, it it does speak to landscape's role in curating those kinds of environments, which is among the things that's on offer in this part Mm -hmm. of the world. It's not just a, it's not just a condominium unit, or it's not just an address or a parking garage. It's also an there's a set of environments you're being invited into that people aspire to. And Margaret, you mentioned the performative measures, right? So that's mm-hmm. another thing, again, that your practice I know has been quite focused on is how do we evaluate the performance of these places? Mm-hmm. How much groundwater, how much seawater, how much storm event, how many species? Mm-hmm. You know, like, has your firm been finding ways to enumerate and to evaluate that mm-hmm. material for your, for your collaborators? Yeah, and I mean, we've started doing that. We revisit our projects often to see how they're doing. We find that I think our most difficult challenge is really the condominiums, because once they're turned over to the condo associations, it's a group of people that decide what happens in those amenities, right? So most of them want flowers, you know, so they don't want native planting. So they rip off our landscape to replace it for invasive plants. And so it's a lot, what Lorinda says, it's educating people, you know, and I think it's going to take a while, but, you know, the last 15 years, I think there's been a big change in mentality with the architects, at least. Mm. And, you know, know, the quantifying that you're asking about in doing the book, for some reason, We've been asked to quantify our results so that Mm -hmm. some of these book people can get a a better grasp of what we're doing. And so at the beginning, I I was, I'm not a quantifying type of person, but, you know, it's interesting because making the tables and figuring it out is enlightening for us. And so Mm -hmm. we, I now see that there's a big benefit in doing that. And the book maybe will be a little tiny nano step forward in, you know, quantifying landscape. So say more about the book. What's the book? It's called The Elevated Landscape, and it's called The Elevated Landscape for two reasons. One, because our practice has really, I wouldn't say specialized, but a lot of what we have done are elevated landscapes, landscapes above the ground. On deck. Right, on deck. So that really taught us a lot in terms of the integration of landscape and architecture. And that was something that Lorinda was always interested in. And, you know, she pioneered that with the Ballet Valet building, the parking garage in Washington Avenue. And so that was a vertical elevated landscape. But, you know, we sort of fell into this type of landscapes that almost every single landscape that we have done throughout the years is elevated. Mm-hmm. Trying to you elevate know. the conversation right. among developers right. about That's landscape, right. trying right. to yeah. get us, mm-hmm. you know, the equal footing with the architects. Sure. So, so the, the elevated landscape, the publication is going to feature mo- mostly work from Miami, mostly work from... Only from work from Miami. Interesting. 
because it's for the Miami National. We took that decision. At the beginning, we were going to show, you know, other projects abroad, but we decided that we would focus just on Miami. Because hmm. we didn't want the book to be this thing that it could be like a portfolio online of project after project. Right. That's what we did not want. So we wanted a really laser-focused book with a little bit of a message, with a little bit of inspiration, which was mm -hmm. a jumping off point for others to see and figure out and keep going forward. Mm -hmm. And so we kept it a kind of a slim book. So yeah, it works, mm -hmm. it works on a couple of different levels. Right. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about parking garages in particular, if you'll indulge me. On the one hand, you've been working to think about the parking garage as more of a vertical surface than just a, a hollow shell. You've been interested, certainly in, in Pam, you've been interested to think about the garage as, as not just a kind of container, but as a central infrastructure saving the art from the storm by sacrificing the parking level. I mean, but I think that even before that, when Lorinda designed the Ballet Ballet, mm. it was already green infrastructure, even though people didn't see it like that. The, the green facade is a filter mm. to absorb all the carbon from the cars and, you know, take it out in clean oxygen. And so I think that that concept of the green infrastructure has been carried out through our practice mm. since we started. Th thank you, you know? for that, Margarita. That that's clearly articulates what I was trying to get at, which is Miami generally has an interest in, in the garage. I can identify maybe a half dozen that I think are architectonically certainly interesting mm. and worthy of study just at the level of architecture. Uh, without going too deep, but in your practice, the idea of twinning automobility carbon around the edges with, with the green services of, of landscape, that's unique. No, I, I know of very few practices that are engaged in that combination of things. And you, and you might say, well, a part of that is the culture or the context here, the climate. Yes, but there are a lot of landscape architects working here, and I don't see many of them that are engaged in that same set of conversations between um, adaptation practices, green infrastructure, and the performance of a parking garage. No, I agree totally with you, Charles, because I mean, most of our competitors don't design with that in mind. They have unique aspects of their practice as well, but very few look at green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the farthest they go is native planting, mm -hmm. maybe. And I always personally, I mean, this is just me and this is very controversial. I find native planning a very slippery slope, you know, because I don't even know where you, where do you pick native, what date? And things are really changing. Like right now in my own yard, which is mm -hmm. tiny, like a postage stamp, I have a breadfruit tree growing, which Dr. Rangoni from the National Tropical Botanical Garden says they shouldn't grow in Miami or they couldn't grow in Miami because Haiti was the farthest north they could ever grow. And she gave me one and it's growing perfectly well. So I find the, the question of nativeness a, a fascinating topic. First of all, the, the idea that there's an appropriate cultural response to a certain region in architecture has largely been debunked, thankfully, over the course of the last century of architectural thought. And, and yet in, in landscape thought and in the garden arts, it's still is pervasive, this idea. But as climates change and as the climate zones move north and as, as species begin to migrate, of course, that's up for grabs. I mean, the other thing that's interesting to me is the origin of Miami Beach in itself as a kind of plantation, as a kind of, you know, the growing of plant crops as a part of the origin of, of the site itself of Miami Beach. So there's quite a lot of fascinating material there. And 
I think landscape architects are struggling with that. I mean, they're, as you are in your practice, dealing with that on a, on a regular basis. So over the past two decades, uh, past 15 years, you've built Architectonic Geo. You've built some extraordinary built work, built landscapes here in a city that's maturing. So in addition to being the local landscape architects doing the good work, you're also global. You also work elsewhere. So wh- where else are you doing work just now? In Panama, mm-hmm. in the city of Panama. We're doing, in the United States, we have several, well, that's not abroad, it's here, but we have in San Francisco, in Nashville, Tennessee, in New York, and then abroad, our projects abroad right now. Lima. Lima, we have one, yeah. At one point, most of our projects were abroad, and now most of our projects are in Miami. Mm. So it sort of fluctuates, I Mm. think. So I want to talk more with you about, about Miami. So, you know, it has a series of challenges that many American cities share, but somehow in extremity, somehow in large relief. We know that it's very expensive to live here. We know that a lot of people have a very hard time either immigrating here. Those that do arrive have a very hard time, many of them affording to pay for housing. When you combine the cost of housing with the times of, and cost of commuting, Miami-Dade Metro moves to one of the first or second worst conditions in North America, even though the, the housing costs here may be lower than in my hometown in Cambridge or in, or in the Bay Area or in New York. If you add commuting time to housing affordability, it's very difficult for the working class. And at the same moment, the, the wealth of the city, the boom of the city, the, both the public institutions, but also certainly the condominium development, seem to be addressing a very different population. And so I, I wonder if you've thought about that. I mean, clearly your practice is dealing with a range of those issues from, you know, streetscape in Wynwood, community-driven, city client-based work to also working in the districts that are building amenity and destination environments. But from your experience as a landscape architect, do you have thoughts about that? So how does Miami deal with those challenges in your experience? One thing I always find, the immigrant population is really essential to Miami. And so everything that's happening right now vis-a-vis that situation is anathema to our city. Really, I don't know how it can go on, but one thing that's interesting to me is a lot of these amenity-driven condos that are inaccessible to the so-called immigrant population are actually financed by the immigrant population. And also, there are great incentives here that if you, there's a threshold of a half a million dollars, I believe, at which point you can get a green card if you have that type of investment. So that many investors want to do investment here in Miami for that green card. And so that not only is there an immigrant population that's finding it hard to get housing, but there's an immigrant population that's financing the entire city for the incentive of being able to stay here anyway. And so I don't know how to articulate it, but it's very, it it seems like those condos don't, you know, relate to anything, but they very much relate to the immigrant. But I think that this boom of super high-end condominiums is probably not going to last very long because there is a sort of movement of building, you know, lower type, you know, more rentals, uh, apartments than condos. We have several uh, affordable housing projects that we're working on, not in downtown Miami, but, you know, not far either. I think the the biggest challenge that Miami has now is mobility. And if they would resolve that issue, then a lot of the problems would disappear. Mm. 
because there are enough built low-income housing around Miami. There is, you know, it's just far. Mm. And the problem is that there's no public transportation. In, in theory, there is, but in practice, there isn't, you know. So, you know, the, the, the highways, every time they're more congested, everybody needs a car. Everybody needs a parking garage to park the car. I mean, it's, it's really a problem. Do you think in your experience in the city that we could be optimistic about a generational change with people moving to the city and changing, changing their mobility habits? Where we're based in Coconut Grove, different stratification of, let's say, income is very, like everybody's living really close to each other. And there are several free transportation elements that pick up from the one line thing that we train we got and the the one is called the freebie which i'm sure you've encountered and one is the trolley both free and people use those to get to work Mm -hmm. and everything else and they're just really kind of easy to use especially the freebie if you have a phone and so i think there's going to be a whole other network of transportation probably free that's going to be springing up because it's really serviceable. There's a range of experiments going on in American cities just mm-hmm. now about that last mile. And among them, the trolleys and the free connectors are, I think, interesting. So, so we'd be remiss um, without really talking about sea level rise and storm event. Uh, among the reasons to be here in Miami is it's among the U.S. cities that's in the most extreme vulnerable condition. We know that it's limestone geology mitigates against a lot of the clay and river-based solutions we've seen in the Netherlands or in other parts of North America. Miami Beach has uh, so-called nuisance flooding on a regular basis. The city is itself adapting to by elevating streets and installing backflow preventers and pumps and a range of other infrastructure improvements. As landscape architects working in the public realm here for some time, how do you think about your adaptation, the adaptation of the city of Miami, both in your own work, but also more broadly as the city adapts to living with water and with storm event more often? I mean, we have the perfect example in Stiltsville. And I'm not sure, the city of Miami is just not prepared to allow any building on the water. But that is really very, a very serviceable and very right, what we've always done. Also to allow housing, as in Holland, on houseboats would be really wise of them. They're not quite there yet. Although there are lots of liveaboards from where I live, you can see, and where we are in the Grove. The bay is full of liveaboards, people who just are living on their boats and they go up and down with the tide happily and they row into work. I think our city is really on the verge of being completely adapted to living with and on water. I don't think it's going to be a horrible thing, but the city of Miami and the county are not quite there yet. Hmm. So clearly there's a a lot of work both Mm -hmm. for the designing classes, architects, landscape architects, but also for the political leadership. I mean, if you look at, you know, Biscayne Bay and both edges, both the kind of island there are many, many projects that really point toward a progressive and adaptable future. At the same moment, it strikes me that there are many contexts where, as new development imagines a new level of the city, a floor or two above, many of these projects have already built into their pro forma the expectation of either you know, getting into and out of their development before the big storm hits, or even building in a new level for the public realm altogether. But I think your practice, among other things, is providing leadership through the built work. You're showing examples of how to how to manage and hold stormwater on site, how to build resilient and sponge-based kind of site plans, and, and how to do it not waiting for some catastrophic event in the future and not waiting for the city itself to fund these things, but working within the, 
that the economy that the city enjoys today. In that regard, are, are there projects you have right now in the office that you think of as interesting and pointing a way forward toward an adaptation of the city that you think others might want to want to benefit from or learn from? Probably the park in Miami Beach. Okay, we're doing a park at the entrance of Miami Beach. Well, we call it 500 Alton because it's in the cross, you know, road of Alton and Fifth. Mm. And the whole park has been designed for stormwater management and connections. Mm. Connections, you know, both north, south, and east, west. So it's been designed, you know, with the aid of the community, Mm. with the city of Miami Beach, and also with the enthusiasm that we put in our practice to deal with all these issues, especially stormwater management, which is critical in Miami Beach in particular. The community was very, very strong in what they, I yeah. mean, they, they created the whole program completely. Yeah. It's interesting because originally the site, which is three blocks, was coded for up to, I think, a height of seven floors. So there was a whole project designed for that site, full density, seven floors, no urban space, you know, just packed. And at one point, I don't know how that happened, the developer came to Architectonica. Bernardo actually suggested that what they should do was a tower and leave the rest of the land as a park for the community. Okay, so it was a very bold proposal. It took a lot of work with the city and then with the community. But when the community saw what they could get in return, everybody jumped on the ship. And now when they look back, they just say, well, we can't even imagine what this could have been instead of the park that we're going to have now. Margarita Blanco. Lorinda Spear, thanks very much. Thank Thank you, you, Charles. Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.